Well, do take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 13. <clears throat> John 13 introduces the uh, section in which we hear Jesus' great farewell uh, to his disciples before his arrest and crucifixion. The farewell is prefaced by this prologue in verses 1 to 30 of chapter 13 and ends with a prayer that we find in chapter 17. And the theme of this prologue is the cleansing of the new community, that is the new Israel that Jesus has gathered. He's turned his back, chapter 12. He's turned away from old Israel. They've rejected him. He knows that they have been plotting and scheming to be done with him. He will no longer speak to them, and he has turned to his own. We read in verse 1 of chapter 13, his own who were in the world. They are now distinguished from old Israel. They are his own. They are the continuing people of God. And uh, he will go on to say in chapter 15 that they now represent the true vine in their connection to him who is himself. As we saw this morning from Isaiah, he is himself the representation of Israel. He is the obedient, the true and faithful Israel of God. And in him, we find our connectedness to the people of God. So the focus here then is on the cleansing of that community. And that happens figuratively by the action that Jesus is performing here in washing the feet of the disciples. We'll see its significance more cl clearly tonight but also physically in the removal of Judas Iscariot. That will happen in, later on in the chapter. Judas Iscariot, who is there, who is a public, publicly belongs to the group, is going to leave, and it's going to become very clear that he does not belong. He was one of them, but he has never truly belonged to them. Which raises a big question as to the visible church of Christ, the visible church of Christ does not always have in its totality those uh, amongst their number who really are followers of Jesus. Now, we're looking at this action. This is what we began looking at last time, uh, the action that Jesus performs here in washing the feet of his disciples, uh, uh, laying aside his uh, outer clothing, pouring water into a basin, washing their feet. And I said last time that what we have here is a prophetic action. You might know that, for example, Jeremiah on one occasion built a kind of model city of Jerusalem, and then he built siege works around the model, a kind of diorama that a boy, a boy might get, might do with his, with his toys, and he had little toy soldiers around it, and uh, every day he would set up his diorama and the people walking the streets would come and they would look at the prophet playing with his toys and wonder what was going on. And of course, what was going on was that he was setting up this model of what was going to, to happen. People were in denial, but he wanted them to see this is what is going to happen. This is the word of God to you. There will be a siege and there will be a fall of Jerusalem. And here it is in the diorama, the dramatic little depiction that Jeremiah sets up. And Jesus is doing something similar here in this 
prophetic action. It is an action that is informed by the word, uh, the words of Scripture. And however humiliating it was for Jesus to start washing the dirty feet of his men, however humiliating it was for them to see their rabbi do this action, and they did apparently find it quite humiliating and debasing to see him do this, that was nothing compared to what they were going to see next day when their Lord and Master is nailed, literally, naked before the public of Jerusalem, and there hanging in Paul, impaled upon that cross, publicly exposed to ridicule and scandal and uh, the mockery of the crowds, there they would find humiliation in its uttermost in the part of their Savior, Jesus. Now, the context puts the action very closely related to what Jesus knew. We spent time looking at this, but I'm refreshing your memory, or I'm telling you for the first time you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks. Jesus knew the time. He knew it was God's time. Chronologically, it was the Passover. Uh, he t eternally, it was the time that for him who had come from God to go back to God. So he's very conscious as he does this action of the moment. It is the Passover, the time for sacrifice. And as he, goes, as, as he performs this action, we saw last time, he is very conscious of his origin. He had come from God, and his destiny, he is going to God. So what you see in the action replicates what he knew. He knew he'd come from God, and so he leaves his place at the table. He lays aside his outer clothing, his best suit. He puts it off. He puts on the badge of the slave, putting the towel around his waist. He pours out the water into the basin. He washes their feet. And when he's finished, he goes back to his place. He had come from God, and he is returning to God. And it's this that is on Jesus' mind then as he performs this ceremony. But there is, there is something else that's going on here. And if you have your Bible open, I hope that you will be able to see it by glancing down, especially glancing at the previous chapter. If you glance at the layout of the previous chapter, I think two things should jump at you from the page. And they are those two Old Testament references, those quotations that are almost in the form of poetry. And you can see that. It jumps out at you there in verse 38 and again in verse 40. And you will see that both of them are quotations from our homeboy, Isaiah. I mean, we know Isaiah so well. And, and, and actually, I've forgotten how to say his name in proper English, Isaiah. But anyway, I just threw that in there to remind you that he is uh, is, his name is pronounced properly elsewhere in the world. Now, those two quotations from Isaiah there are, are part, of course, of a rich series of quotations. John is bristling with quotations from Isaiah. It informs his understanding of who Jesus is. And one of the principles of 
New Testament interpretation is this, that wherever there is an allusion to or a quotation from one part of the Old Testament, you are meant to go back to that quotation and that reference and see its context and see how that quotation fits in the broader context of where it came from. Now, as you look at those quotations, they're very interesting because the first one comes from one of the servant songs of Isaiah, Isaiah 52-53. And the second one comes from Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and exalted in the temple. You'll remember, it's the year King Uzziah died. He goes into the temple. Well, he can't get into the temple, actually, because the whole temple is full of the glory of God. And the train of his temple fills fills the house. And, And those angelic beings are singing praise to God. They're singing praise to God, and their praises are shaking the thresholds of the temple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory, they sing. And then in Isaiah 52, 53, you have this servant song in which the complaint of the apostles in the, in the mouth of Isaiah is, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? But the preface to that song of Isaiah 53, the preface begins actually at the end of chapter 52, where we have the servant of the Lord described in exactly the same language as we have the figure of Isaiah chapter 6. Because the servant, we are told, is high and exalted. He is lifted up very high, and he is highly exalted. So in chapter 6, you have the Lord God Almighty high and exalted, and in chapter 52, 53, you have the servant of the Lord high and exalted. And Jesus says, or John says, after these quotations from both parts of Isaiah's prophecy, of the Lord God Almighty and of the suffering servant, he says, these things, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, he saw the glory of Jesus in its eternal form, He was always sharing the glory of the Lord God of Israel. The Lord God of Israel's identity. He shared it and he received the glory of God. In Isaiah 52, 53, the work of the servant when it is finished sees him going back to that exalted state. He had come from God and he is returning to God. That's the picture that is painted here. Even though he is disbelieved and disregarded, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. That is a staggering claim for John to make, that Jesus occupied the throne of God from all eternity and now occupies the throne of God again today, that he was worshipped by angels. 
Do you know what was common in Jewish monotheism? To distinguish the identity of the God of Israel and the angels and the archangels and the authorities and the powers and even divine men. Those were all in a different category altogether. And whenever Jesus is described, he is never compared to an angel or an archangel or any of the principalities and the powers or even divine men. He is only ever identified with the identity of the Lord God of Israel. And that's the picture that we have here. And what we learn here is the one that shares the same identity as the Lord God of Israel descends. He who was with God descends to become the servant of the Lord. And it goes on to describe, Isaiah goes on to describe, the work of the servant is this. He comes to bear sin and he comes to bring salvation to his own people. And in the process of bringing salvation and bearing their sin, here's what Isaiah says of him. He poured out his soul to death. Now you go back to John 13. He has come from God. He's returning to God. Come from God. He leaves his place. He lays aside his garments and he pours water into a basin. He pours out his soul to death. He is giving them a visual, prophetic portrayal of his mission, which is to pour out his life to death and to be numbered with the transgressors. He is going to wash Judas's feet as well as Peter's feet. And Peter is a transgressor. And Judas is a transgressor. He will be numbered with the transgressors. He will bear the sins of many. And he will make intercession for the transgressors. Now there seems to be this deliberate connection being drawn here with that passage in John 12. And with an earlier passage in John chapter 10 where he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. And he comes for his own into the world. In John chapter 10, verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. He lays down his outer garments, then he takes them and resumes his place. I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. He goes on to say, I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it again. This charge I've received from my Father. Now, if you're still following me and you're not falling into your twilight zone yet, listen to this. This is what Jesus is visually representing here. And it was deliberate and it was shocking. It would shock the disciples, but what it represented was going to shock them even more. What it represented was going to shock them even more. Look at verse 6. Simon is shocked. He challenges the Lord Jesus. Do you, you, do you wash my feet? Oh, these boys are noisy tonight. Simon Peter considers Jesus' action completely incompatible with their mutual relationship. That sentence, by the way, begins with you and ends with me. You 
Wash the feet of me? Absolutely not. Not only is it a social scandal that a rabbi should wash the feet of his disciple, it's a social scandal that anybody in, in your position, the position who is the host of a, of a meal, should go washing the feet of your guests. It, 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 but, but above all, we know what we said about you back in John chapter 6. Well, Peter didn't know it was John chapter 6, but he remembered what he said that John records in chapter 6 when they said, you remember, you are the Holy One of God. You're the Holy One of God. Well, if you're the Holy One of God, what are you doing washing our feet? Feet that are the symbol, apart from anything else, of the earthiness, the earthiness of humanity. It's the closest we come to the dust from which we were made. Okay, that's the context. And if we've thought for a moment about what Jesus knew right at the beginning, and we thought about what Jesus did in leaving his place, pouring out that water, a symbol of the pouring out of his life, washing their feet, he now has something to say. Well, I'm going to hear what he said tonight. And what he said falls into two parts. First of all, there is something that they would understand ultimately. Listen to him. Jesus answered Peter, what I am doing now, you do not understand. But afterward, you will understand. So immediately that's telling you that what we've been seeing in this action was not apparent to the disciples when it happened. Only the resurrection made clear what this prophetic action was pointing to. Jesus is saying that to them. You actually won't understand this. So when will you understand it? John has already set the background for this. Back in chapter 12, verse 16, we're told this about the disciples, about something else Jesus said and did. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. In other words, when Jesus is glorified, when he's raised from the dead, that changes everything for these men. It changes the universe for these men. Everything that he had said and everything that was done to him and everything he had done himself, all of that becomes clear, apparent, meaningful after the resurrection. The resurrection was the earth-moving, cosmos-shaking, mind-bending, paradigm-shifting moment in the minds of these disciples. With the guidance of Scripture, the help of the Spirit, a light will switch on in their spirit and in their head, and they would understand. What would they understand? I think you see a hint of it in the answer as it unfolds. Let's remember the action. He rises, puts on the towel, pours out the water, washes their feet. Look at verse 10. Here's his comment. You are clean, but not every one of you. He's talking about cleanliness, cleansing. There in verse 10, he's talking about Judas the betrayer. So he's not talking about physical cleanliness. He's not talking about whether he's done a good job washing their feet from all the dust and grit of the dusty streets of Palestine. That really isn't the point. 
It's a symbolic action pointing to something far deeper. And the reference to Judas highlights this. This, this action, this very physical action, is pointing to a spiritual washing that Judas hadn't experienced. And this spiritual washing is tied to Jesus' action of self-humiliation and self-giving and self-sacrifice. Look at the sweep again. He got up just as he got up from his eternal throne. He took off his outer clothing just as he laid aside the display of his glory. He wrapped a towel around his waist just as he takes on the form of a servant. He pours water into a basin the way the suffering servant pours out his life to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He becomes obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And he washes their feet. You know, it was one of the great predictions, wasn't it, of Scripture that the Messiah, when he came, would, would cleanse his people from their sin. He would wash them. The servant of the Lord, we're told in Isaiah 52, would sprinkle many nations. Ezekiel, speaking about the new covenant age, said that God would sprinkle clean water on his people and they will be clean. They will be clean. This cleaning up job is what we need. Zechariah looked forward to a day when a fountain would be opened in Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. And all this is captured in the action of the foot washing, the water, the washing that Jesus performed. And when he's done, what does he do? He goes back and resumes his place. And if you've still got in mind the brackets of this story, he came from God, he was returning to God. Captured by the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1, after he had provided purification for our sins, washing for our sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So the foot washing, you see, is a parable of salvation. We understand, don't we, the idea of sin as dirt and defilement. When someone has been used or abused, when someone has been raped, what does the victim feel? They feel dirty. They feel that someone has, has violated them and they feel dirt. Not because they've done wrong, but because something wrong has been done to them. Sin leaves us dirty, but above all, dirty in the sight of God. It defiles us. In the ritual and ceremony of Israel, it kept you out of the temple. It kept you away from the sacrifice. Sin defiles. Here is the great message of the gospel. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. There's the good message of salvation. Sin defiles, and salvation deals with the dirt and defilement of sin. Now, as you look at the story, I want you to notice that there is a twofold cleansing referenced in this passage. There is an initial and a continual cleansing that is mentioned 
here. And I put the emphasis there, first of all, on the initial cleansing. There's an initial cleansing that puts us into fellowship with Jesus. An initial cleansing that puts us into fellowship with Jesus. We discover this, actually, from the interaction between Jesus and Peter. It's, it's vintage, Peter. Peter doesn't want Jesus to wash him. Uh, Jesus lays it on the line. If I don't wash you, you'll have no share with me. And Peter, of course, by, in his usual over-enthusiasm and zeal, says, well, well Lord, if, if you've got to wash me for me to be part of you in a fellowship with you, then I want you to wash me all over. Hose me down, Lord. Do what you have to do. You know, I, I want it all from head to feet. The whole works. Give it to me. And, uh, well, you know, the guy's just an enthusiast. Uh, is great. Great kind of guy to have around. But sometimes his mouth runs away with him. Do you know anyone like that uh, uh, who's here this evening in front of you? Well, anyway, Peter, I empathize with Peter. Peter says to Jesus, you will never wash my feet. Jesus says to him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Peter, if you stand by your refusal to let me do this to you, then you will go to hell. If you stand by this, you will not be saved. Our paths will part. That's the end of it. John Calvin's words, in refusing such service, Peter would reject the principal part of his salvation. Because here's the deal this evening. You see, Jesus comes to each one of us in this room tonight, and if you're watching by webcast, He comes to you as well. He comes to each one of us, and He wants to serve us with His salvation. There's nothing we can do, you see, to contribute to the process ourselves. We are we're the ones who are dirty. We are helpless. If we resist Jesus as He wants to serve us with salvation, if we try to do what Peter does, and what a ridiculous thing he does, he, he says, no and Lord. You can't say no and Lord at the same time. If Jesus is Lord, there's only one appropriate word to use. Yes, Lord. Not no, Lord. Because if you say no, then you're saying He's not Lord. You're rejecting His Lordship. It's a contradiction of terms. To be Lord is to have the highest place that heaven affords, His by sovereign right. It means, that we, it means that He stands in the place of the one who makes and maintains the universe by the word of His power. And if we resist Him, if we resist Him, if not, Jesus says to Peter, you have no part with me. Well, Peter responds in this way, and Jesus now teaches him a lesson. He says this to him. Look at verses 9 and 10. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you're clean. You, plural, are clean, but not every one of you, plural. And he's talking to the whole group. Now, he's pressing the illustration home here. In the first century, if you were going out for a meal, going out for dinner, you would have a bath first before you left the house. And then you would make your way from your house to the place where they were having the meal. You'd have open thonged sandals, as I've been telling people, trying to encourage good uh, sartorial behavior. You do not wear socks with sandals. 
And they didn't wear socks with sandals because they were really cool back then. They just wore open thong sandals. So by the time you get there in your open thong sandals, you, your feet are dusty and dirty and the sweat, of course, because it's warm. It's a warm country and, and the sweat is mingled with the sand and so on. And it's kind of grisly and uncomfortable and so on. And in the best places that you would go for dinner, there would be a lowly servant who might wash your feet. Or you'd have to do it yourself. So you'd be comfortable to relax for the evening. Jesus is using that analogy. He's saying, you came to this evening already clean, Peter. You are already clean. All you needed was a touch-up job. But not everybody at this table is really clean. Not everyone around this table has come already cleansed by God. Now, this is not coming out of the blue here in chapter 13. Way back in chapter 3, Jesus had said this to a, to a great Jewish leader. Truly, truly, I say to you, no one, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, unless you experience the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit, the all-over cleansing work of the Spirit, you cannot even enter the kingdom of God. He's talking there about a unique, unrepeatable cleansing. In fact, this same word for the bath that's used here in John 13 is used again in Titus chapter 3, where Paul's writing to Titus, and he says this, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, <clears throat> not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of the new birth. That word washing there is the word for bath. By the bath of the new birth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out in us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. In other words, <clears throat> this initial washing, this all-over washing, this exhaustive, comprehensive washing makes you completely clean in the sight of God. It gives you a relationship with God through Jesus. You are part of Him. He's come to be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. In the book of Revelation, uh, John sees a multitude that no man can count. And they're singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And when John asks who they are, he's told, these are the people who have been washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. They're already clean. They're already clean. And it's that all-over cleansing that everybody here needs. You need it because this is the thing that gets you ready to live with God forever. This is what Jesus offers you by His coming into the world, His humiliation, His death, and His resurrection. He offers you this all-over cleansing that radically changes your life. If you've had a bath, the bath of the new birth, all you need tonight is the basin to wash your feet. That leads me to the second cleansing. If there's an initial cleansing that brings me into fellowship with Christ, there is a partial cleansing that keeps me in fellowship with Christ. You see that decisive word Jesus says to them, you are clean, you plural, you are clean. 
but not every one of you is clean. But you are generally, all of you, round this table, except one who is Judas Iscariot, you are clean. And if you're already clean, then all you need is your feet washed. Why do I need that food washing? Well, this is why Jesus taught us to pray every day that the Father would pardon our sins in his Lord's Prayer. This is what the Puritans are referring to when they talk about the remainders of sin in the life of the believer. A believer who has trusted in Jesus Christ for his salvation is in the sight of God clean. But what happens from day to day is as you and I make our way through the dirty streets of this world is that we get our feet dirty in this, in this, in this sense, that, that, that there are the little sins that we commit and there are the th- things that are done to us and the things we do ourselves, and we get our feet unclean. And by the end of the day, we need Jesus to wash our feet. Nothing can alter the state of cleanliness. Nothing can alter that. You are clean, Jesus says. And if you are clean, all you need for today is for Jesus to deal with today's sins. Do you struggle with that, believer? Do you have the problem of carrying over yesterday's sins to today? Oh, you confessed them yesterday. You may have confessed them for the last 20 years. And what Jesus wants to say to you this evening is, I heard you the first time. And I cleansed you. I washed you that day. It's all over. It's all done. If you've got stuff to confess to him today, go to him today. And he'll wash it clean. And that's it for today. Leave it today and go on to the next day. If you know the Lord Jesus, you are already clean. This is what Paul, uh, John rather, is talking about in 1 John when he says... Uh, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And the sense of the Greek is, go on cleansing us from all sin. And it's that go on cleansing that the foot washing represents. So isn't that great? You, you get into a state of cleanliness by coming to Jesus for salvation. And when from day to day you fall into sin, you follow the Lord's instructions, you pray the prayer He gave you to pray, and the Lord washes your feet. Jesus says, you won't understand this now, but later you will understand it. And they did. And they taught it. They preached it. And we can preach it to ourselves this evening. Well, the the second thing, the last thing he says to them is there's something they could understand immediately. And that thing they could understand immediately was that Jesus had served them. And he's saying, just as I left heaven's glory, just as I humbled myself, even poured out my life to death in order to serve you with salvation, so you, in your relationships with one another, in the way you treat one another, should learn to serve one another. At whatever cost to yourself, maybe it will be humiliating to do so. Maybe it will cost you something to do it. But all you'll be doing is replicating what I have done in your own little world, replicating what I have done for you. I've gone 
I've gone to all the lengths I could to serve you with salvation. Having been served with salvation, he says, you call me teacher and Lord? Well, what do you mean by that? If I'm your teacher, it means that I tell you what to believe. And if I'm your Lord, I tell you how to behave. So get with the program. If you call me teacher and Lord, you ought to wash one another's feet. I think that means forgive those who sin against you. I think that means that whatever your brother or sister needs that you can meet, you meet that need. And it means that you go to whatever lengths you need to go to serve the people Jesus loves for Jesus' glory. Well, we're going to stop there tonight, and we'll pick it up next week and motor on from there. May God help you this week to remember what Christ has done for you. Keep short accounts. Bring them from day to day. Leave them. Leave today's sins. Tomorrow, get over it. And come back to him tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And know the cleansing that he gives from moment to moment to those who love him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that our Lord Jesus, by his great example... His great action here it gives us a visual kind of aid of, of the scope of our salvation, the work that He has done, the cleansing that He offers, and His goodness to us. And we pray that we in our own way will treat other people, will serve your people, will serve the world with salvation by telling them how they may be saved, and will serve our brothers and sisters within the family of God, in whatever way we can, to your praise and glory. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.